0: If you like a little m M&A madness, buckle up. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard here with Motley Fool analyst, Bill Barker. Bill, how's your Monday going so far?
1: Monday's going well so far. Thanks for asking. And yours?
0: Busy. Because, I mean, one of the reasons I love hosting the show on Mondays is I never know what news I'm going to get. But, you know, the rest of the week, you kind of kind of see earnings, uh, economic indicators. Monday is a wild card, but it usually involves some form of mergers and acquisitions. It's kind of like my own version of celebrity gossip. And we've got a makeup and a breakup today. I want to start with the big one. This kind of feels bittersweet to me as a student of U.S. Uh, U.S. history and financial history, but U.S. Steel, right? Once the giant of the American economy, you know, it's t- t- attached to all the big names like J.P. Morgan being acquired by a steel for 15 billion. We knew that this was coming. U.S. Steel has been uh, has been entertaining suitors uh, since the middle of the summer. It's a good deal for shareholders, but I I don't know, Bill, it's the end of an era. What do you think?
1: Well, I I suppose the era ended quite a while ago, although Eh, U.S. Steel is uh, at the heart of a lot of eras, a lot of history, uh, whether you're talking about uh, monopolies and uh, the creation of regulation to uh, thwart monopolies, uh, you're talking about its role in war efforts, uh, Mm. the creation of vast amounts of wealth, the uh, creation of on the other side of sort of the Rust Belt and and so many other parts, you can tell the story of America over the last 130, 140 years or so pretty well uh, by yeah. looking at uh, different aspects of where this company has been. And, and I think that where it has gotten to is not as interesting as, as where it's been.
0: But I mean, this is still a $15 $15 billion deal. This isn't a company that you know, that that is like disappearing or anything. And it's it's still a valuable company. And one of the things, uh, you know, I try to ask with every deal these days is, is it likely to happen? Is it likely to go through because there's so many governmental regulations? What kind of considerations do you think are going to go into this one happening or not happening?
1: Well, the size of the deal and the size of the headline is not commensurate with the import of the company in the stock market. For sure, it hasn't been in the S and P five hundred for decades. uh, And you know, I was looking up sort of what are the other similarly sized companies in terms of market cap, not in terms of employees or output. But you know, it's it going into this deal, it was about the same size as Etsy. So, (laughs) you've got this picture of U.S. Steel as being this gigantic, important uh, entity in terms of employment with 15,000 people, uh, and that's uh, largely a unionized workforce. That's going to be the biggest hurdle, I think, is getting any type of union uh, buy-in. They're going to oppose, they've already announced that they're going to oppose this deal. Uh, on uh, various grounds, but I think ultimately on, on what it's likely to do to jobs in the U.S. So, uh, regulatory backdrop is not terribly favorable here uh, right now for this, uh, the market is discounting a little bit, uh, despite how much the stock has gone up today, about 25-26%, uh, there's still a gap between uh, where the market uh, is pricing the stock and and the uh, the offer price?
0: I think one of the things that's interesting too is that this was so much uh, bigger than the Cleveland Cliffs deal that was supposed to happen. There's definitely some value here, and I think more so for for Nippon Steel than it than it would have been for for Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, U.S. Steel, they're going to keep their name and their headquarters in in Pittsburgh, but. It's it's obvious that the the locus of building has shifted, right? China now dominates the world when it comes to steel, but China is also going through its own building crisis. So we're looking at a fading inter- industry, but not not a disappearing one.
1: No, not disappearing. Still important in terms of what you do with steel and construction, buildings, cars. Uh, so. There's uh, plenty of plenty of work to be done on producing steel domestically, but uh, the economics of it have not worked out for shareholders very well. And uh, if somebody else wants to give this a try, today's shareholders uh, or yesterday's shareholders are are willing to let them do so. I think uh, you know at the price that they're offering. Uh, maybe uh, Nippon sees uh, efficiencies that uh, U.S. Steel has never been able to affect. And if so, then maybe it becomes a, an attractive economic deal beyond just making Nippon, I think, the number three steelmaker in, in the world in terms of uh, uh, tonnage, uh, if, if it uh, combines. So, I, I would assume that they see uh, that this is a good allocation of, of capital. Uh, and more than Cleveland Cliffs was able to to offer. Uh, Cleveland Cliffs is uh, also up on uh, on the day. I guess the idea that uh, U.S. Steel makers have a a price that is now being reset by by this offer. So that that's been uh, to the benefit of uh, the, the shareholders beyond U.S. Steel.
0: Yeah, good point. And it's it is a reminder that that today's, today's hot industry is is tomorrow's, oh, well, that was big once upon a time. It, it seems like, I mean, you're right, steel, steel was once, I mean, hell, there's Pittsburgh Steelers for a reason. But uh, it's also a highly cyclical industry. And this this is not this the cycle to, to, to be investing in it, it seems like.
1: No, well, it was uh, peaked in terms of output 70 years ago. So yeah. it's been a long uh, series of chapters uh, of other competitors going bankrupt and US Steel being able to take over some of those. And the largest uh, company in the world once upon a time and uh, the center of. Uh, the, the Carnegie story making Andrew Carnegie the wealthiest man in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charles Schwab, uh, the financier and, and at one time, uh, the CEO of steel companies. Uh, there's, there's a lot of American history, uh, there and uh, yeah, it lives on in the form of the Steelers and a lot of, uh, you know, present day uh, Pittsburgh and what has been created by the steel industry over the the decades and centuries, uh, but uh, it's it's not, it's not something that uh, has the kind of economic returns uh, that interest that many people.
0: Well, let's move on and talk about a deal that won't be making it to the finish line. Adobe is calling off their acquisition of Figma. Figma is a sort of design software company, uh, it helps you sort of design and build uh, websites and apps and things like that. This one seems to be a victim of uh, regulators. They had uh, faced friction from both the UK and the EU, uh, gave up before the Department of Justice rendered their decision though, and they're gonna pay a billion dollar breakup fee. So should Adobe shareholders be happy about this?
1: Apparently, uh, they're (laughs) they're happier to the tune of 2% uh, today in the market. Uh, market that's up about half a percent uh, in the S&P so yeah not not disappointed the the purchase price at the time uh, September of last year I guess was uh, uh aggressive and part of this was being uh, fueled by stock as well as cash and Adobe stock is up uh, about 100% uh, over that time period and and 75% this year or so Shareholders are seemingly happy to not have the stock diluted for the acquisition of an entity that that would have made lots of sense in Adobe's uh, portfolio, but Adobe has products that compete with Figma. and uh, I think there was a pretty reasonable argument by the regulators uh, on this merger that this was going to be anti-competitive, that this was uh, something where the the consumer would do better with these two companies competing against each other than than combining.
0: Well, and I think it was it's interesting to me because Adobe had their earnings last week, and you know uh, they were st- still saying they were going to wait, and they felt optimistic that this was going to go through. And now, you know, this it it seems a little sudden to me that they didn't wait all the way to hear from from the DOJ. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's something if they took this opportunity because maybe they thought they were overpaying or something like that?
1: I think the possibility that they were overpaying could have a role in it. I'm sure that discussions with the lawyers uh, in the many jurisdictions where they were going to have to get this uh, approved uh, and what the, the tone was uh, waiting around in the U.S. Uh, for a new administration uh, might be plausible, but mm. in the EU and UK, less so. So, I think that uh, on balance, they can can do this. They can do plenty without Figma. Uh, Figma can do plenty without Adobe. And waiting around uh, to fight this, uh, what seemed to be long series of battles, uh, was not in the interest, apparently, of either party. But it does, as you point out with the declarations just last week of what their intent and belief was about how this would play out, uh, you know, you got to take that with a grain of salt on the the public proclamations about how things are going to work out in situations that are outside of the hands of management.
0: My wild theory and speculation is, um, you know, hearing last week that that DocuSign is is looking, you know, is potentially exploring a sale. I'm like, oh well, maybe Adobe wanted to put the money there. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think private equity will probably grab that, but. That was, that was sort of one thing that I was just sort of wildly speculating on, since it seems like DocuSign might, might be being sold somehow, somewhere.
1: Somewhere, maybe. They'd like it, I guess. Yeah, so would, would yeah, it sounds like it. <laughs> better than uh, some of the places that their stock has visited over the last couple of years since the, the peak craziness. So uh, if they can get something that's rewarding to today's shareholders, that's uh, in, in their interest. But I think that the M&A market is healthier today given the bull market moves in the last couple months and that's that's showing up in the news.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's the end of the, the year. I was talking to uh Jason Moser last Monday and asked him, you know, do you think there's we're going to see any more M&A for, for the rest of the year? He thought he thought maybe and certainly since since I talked to him, I think we've seen a couple of other biotech deals, but one of the things I think about these days is knowing how long every deal is is taking. It's not it's multiple years at this point and the risks for it not getting approved are so high. As an investor, what do you what do you think like when you hear of an acquisition these days? Are you putting are you sort of just waiting and thinking it's not going to go through? How are you thinking about it?
1: I would say that the environment is less favorable today than it's been most of the last Couple decades, and that, that uh, any deal should be discounted uh, to a degree uh, by mm-hmm. that. And uh, you know, the the bigger the size, and the more that uh, you know tech is involved, that seems to be getting uh, extra scrutiny. There are only so many levers that the regulators have currently uh, to regulate uh, tech. They they can't get the lawmakers to give them. Uh, additional power the lawmakers seem to all agree that there should be far greater regulation but what that is uh, hasn't moved forward at all uh, really and but what does exist is is the power to uh, stop mergers and and that prevents uh, big tech companies from getting uh, bigger faster uh, to a degree so I think that uh, that is a particular area where I would look for you know mergers to be, uh, getting large amounts of scrutiny and uh, a bias against uh, permitting them.
0: Well, it's interesting because, logically, individual investors know, like, okay, just because a deal is announced doesn't mean a deal is, is done, but the market doesn't seem to know that. We get these wide swoops of enthusiasm and it really you know, it becomes that, that voting machine in, in, the, in the short term.
1: Well, you've got uh, certainly uh, anybody that was short the stock uh, kind of has to cover, uh, or is, is likely to, and right. uh, situation such as U.S. Steel's, there's an offer for 55 out there. The market, you know, shot up to 50 at the open uh, for its uh, share price, despite the fact that it it may not get approved. Uh, but it's it's certainly on. Um, You know, maybe maybe this ends up uh, being good news for uh, the Cleveland Cliffs merger. I don't know exactly how, but uh, they they seem to be seeing their stock price go up, and that that's the kind of merger that would get much quicker approval, uh, keeping everything uh, domestic. So, uh, yeah, it's it's always worth keeping in mind that a merger announcement is not the equivalent of a, a you know completed merger, but uh, it 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 indicates that there is interest uh, at higher prices uh, for the assets of these companies and so that in itself is reason for the stock to move higher
0: so as an investor should do you think people should I mean, of course it's individual, but when all of a sudden a stock that you've had in your portfolio that is kind of languishing along all of a sudden spikes on a on a deal or a proposed deal is is that is that the time to potentially consider an exit?
1: Uh, if you like the price yeah uh I think that uh the the prices for the acquired company is almost always not always but almost always higher than you know what the market price was and yeah. you know if you've got a valuation that makes sense to you to sell uh then uh it, not waiting around for it might might make sense depends on your tax situation depends on your other you know it's it's a complicated Portfolio question, but uh, if if you like the price, uh, then that that might be waiting around for those last two or three dollars uh, may not be in your interest at times. It's very specific to the the the, the deal and uh, the individual uh, holding.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for spending this MA Monday with me, Bill.
1: All right, thanks for having me.
0: The analysts you hear on the show have a whole other day job, providing premium coverage and recommendations for the Motley Fool's suite of stock investing services. We're giving our listeners a discount on Motley Fool's flagship service. It's called Stock Advisor. If you're interested in more analysis from our team, two stock recommendations per month, and access to Stock Advisor's full scorecard of companies, visit www.fool.com slash MFM discount.
2: Ricky Malvi with Motley Full Money here to tell you about a vehicle that is redefining sporting luxury, the Range Rover Sport. The first thing I noticed when I sat down in the driver's seat is that I felt like I was in a cockpit. You're up off the ground in a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. I also really appreciated the overhead 360-degree camera view that let me know exactly where I was going as I was backing out of the parking space. I went for a drive in the Range Rover Sport out in Littleton, Colorado tested the accelerator just a little bit and felt the performance and agility. It's an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. To put it plainly, the Range Rover Sport is powerful. It's also quiet and comfortable. Advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable yet. Like to invite you to visit LandRoverUSA.com to learn more about the Range Rover Sport.
0: Now, once upon a time, you talked to computers by ringing a bell. I caught up with angel investor and author Bill Radichel about the past six decades in tech, messing with the laws of physics, and the difference between Apple and Xerox. Let's set the table a little bit by discussing what tech kind of was and wasn't when you got started way back in this business, because it is a very different world now.
3: Oh, it's it's totally different. I mean, the first computer that the college I was at bought had only two ways to talk to it: a bell and a paper tape and you had to code very complicated <laughs> bell sequences, or you otherwise you had to take a paper tape and go over to a flexor writer and feed the flexor writer the tape so it would print out what was on the paper tape. So the world's changed in, in every respect. The first computer I programmed had 10,000 characters of memory, and You know, my Apple Watch has 128 gigabytes, I mean, it's 64 gigabytes, millions of times more power. You know, what we saw in the beginning did very specialized tasks, maybe fine, but they were very limited. And today, we're talking about artificial general intelligence on our phone uh, that will be able to do almost all the thinking we do routinely in our lives. I mean, it's just, you know, night and day universes away.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that and in reading your book is the the early days of tech, because nobody knew what was ahead, nobody kind of knew what to pay attention to. And it sounded to me like there were a bunch of missed opportunities, especially around data. If you could go back in time, what would you tell people to focus on?
3: Privacy, security, Mm -hmm. and mental health. I mean, if there are three things that people missed, I assure you, no one up until the last five years ever talked mental health. Privacy, that's been around a long time. I mean, my friend and at, the time, my, at that time, my boss, Scott McNeely, in 1995 at a press conference on something else, a question was raised about privacy, and he said, there is no privacy. Get over it. That was in 1995, so that issue has been around a long time, but we haven't done much. The people who invented the Internet did an incredibly good job, but they thought it was going to be a million people. Now it's nearly five billion. The technology was great. It was a brilliant design, but they never thought about the the privacy issues or the fact that when they designed the Internet, they designed it to be sessionless. Now, that's a technical term, but what it means is that you can do things on the Internet without an identity, and so you have anonymity, and this is really the first time. Even when you go into a store, you're not anonymous because somebody is is able to see you and recognize you, but, you know, there's the famous New Yorker cartoon, which I think has by far and away the most requests for reprint, which is the one that shows the dog sitting at a console, saying, "You know, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog." But we didn't think about the flip side of that. We didn't think about how this could be played out. We certainly didn't even think social media, right? I mean, that you know, no, no one thought of that. Even today, you know, when you see people talking AI, you know the consultants or the advisors tend to have a trick question for the executive claiming they have an AI strategy and ask them, what is their data strategy? And the person says, well, we don't have one. Well, if you don't have a data strategy, you don't have an AI strategy because AI is fed on data. And if you don't have the data, you can't feed the AI, so you don't have a strategy. A couple of things that I've learned along the way. One is that it's all loss of physics. If you don't understand what laws of physics you're changing and why that's going to enable a new round of innovation, then you probably don't really have the investment opportunity you thought you might have. And and secondly, it's all people. And some people were able to sit there. I mean, Andy Becklesheim is badge number one at Sun. And in 1988, he he sat down with me and he explained to me the information environment we would have in our homes then, 88, the so one we have today with high-speed internet wow. and all these things. He, he did that in 1988. And so there are a handful of founders who are able to look out and see what these laws of physics dictate and which things will, in the end, win out. And it was very clear, even in 1988, that TCPIP, which is the foundation of the internet, you know, was going to win. It was going to end end up being that was going to be the technology that won and everything else would take a long time to fade away. But that's where we are today. I mean, you have a single high speed IP connection coming into your house and that drives everything. Uh, And he he could see it. So the, the, the change, part of the reason I wrote the book was to make the point that none of this happened without people. And it's easy to look at this stuff and mm. say, well, they, no. But there were individuals along the way. It took, it took work. It took engineers. It took people working long, hard hours. It took deals between people that didn't want to strike deals to, to go make it happen. And, you know, it, it, it's been a struggle. I mean, it rewarded some people, you know, beyond their, their dreams. But it, it's a very personal thing. I mean, I, I got to write the book because it comes out of a class I taught at Georgetown. And I was asked to do the class by a friend who was the dean, and he said, my students need to know what the real world is, and there isn't enough real world. So please come in and talk to them about how the world really developed in terms of the things they're going to be doing and watching and observing. And that's what started me. And so those lectures became the basis for uh, the book and the chapters and it's all better be written. But that's really where the ideas came from.
0: Well, I've, I want to go back a little bit to some some of your history uh, because you have some of the great lines in the book that really sort of help me understand. What things were like at a certain time and one of them was about Xerox. You called Xerox the most professionally managed company in the country at that point, but you mm-hmm. also made the point that there's a big gap between professionally managed and best. So right. looking at that now, would you say that you see companies that are professionally managed right now? And or do you see companies that are best managed right now? And are there
3: well the, the comment that got me into trouble at Xerox, Deidre, was the comment that it was professionally managed but content free. <laughs> and, 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 and that the management process was largely devoid of a discussion around whether this was going to work or where the competitive advantage came from or the the core of what uh, what happened. and but they you could take the Xerox technology or techniques and, and apply it to any industry. But if you didn't have the knowledge of the content, then it didn't matter, right? Mm. It was a way to make decisions, but it unfortunately, you know, another line is process affects outcomes. And because you did things in that way, and Xerox always wanted evidence. And so they kept looking for evidence before they would spend money. Well, in technology, you gotta, that means you're always shooting behind the duck, as they say. If you wanna shoot to where the puck is going, to mix metaphors, you gotta be willing to act on knowledge. And Xerox wanted evidence. And you can't manage technology on evidence. Because by the time you've got the evidence, it's too late. You've got to be able to manage it on knowledge. To manage it on knowledge, you have to understand what it's all about.
0: Is that why they missed the opportunity with Park, where they had this great technology, but they just didn't see how to use it?
3: Well, it's a fascinating tale of two questions. Xerox Management went to Park, saw the demo. It was beautiful. I mean, it was a wonderful system. Uh, It's as good as anything you got today in the the office. And they did it on much less powerful hardware. It was really an act of genius. And the Xerox team said, great, we're going to bet on this. How much does it cost? Now, this, again, is 1970, uh, late 70s. We really say this question would be mid-80s. And the Xerox team said it would be about $85,000 a desk. I mean, $50,000 a desk in 1985. So Xerox built a business around it. Steve Jobs came and saw the same technology, and he went back to his man- engineering team and said, give me as much of this as you can for $2,000. So management asked different questions, and they got good answers to both questions. But the Xerox answer obviously never was going to be a mass product, whereas the Z- Steve Jobs' answer was the Macintosh. And so it's this professional management. I mean, they they had a way of doing things. And, you know, Steve Jobs didn't do it that way at all. I mean, he looked at it, said, this is, you know, this is the way computers are going to be forever. You can find a video clip of him saying that. And yet he asked the question, how much of this can you do for $2,000? Xerox would never think of asking that question. Never. They were, you know, Managing correctly was more important than getting to the right answer.
0: Well, we started off talking about AI. I kind of want to wrap up there because you've seen all of these different revolutions throughout your career. We're now in the middle of one. I'm sure you're seeing some of the missteps we're making, but also some of the opportunities. So, what are you hoping leaders pay most attention to?
3: Well, I mean, I, I heard a statistic today that ChatGPT has 180 million registered users in less than six months. Now, if you look at the adoption of a consumer technology, you know, it took color television 20 years. (laughs) ChatGPT did it in four or five months, right? To get an equivalent level of penetration. So obviously this is the fastest being adopted technology ever. I don't know how sustained the usage is going to be. Um, it's a new abstraction layer. And if you look at the history of the computer industry, it is a succession of abstraction layers. In the beginning, you wrote software to the hardware. Then we invented an assembly language to make that easier. Then we invented compilers, Fortran, COBOL, Pascal, C, to make it even easier. Then we invented the desktop environment. We invented the operating systems that let you do things. Then we invented the Windows environment, the desktop environment. Back then became the web. And now we're going to the next abstraction layer, which is AI. And every time you've changed abstraction layer, you've changed everything. Because it automatically absorbs all that's gone before. It lets more people utilize the technology and they get more power quicker, easier, faster. And so you get third party. I mean, the ChatGPT apps is a huge deal. I mean, the iPhone would be nothing without the App Store. Sure. Right? And so Ch- ChatGPT would be the iPhone, but now ChatGPT with apps is going to be like the iPhone we have today. I mean, first iPhone, when a chip did not have apps. And Steve Jobs yeah. didn't want it to have a camera. I mean, people forget that. I mean, it's 15 years ago, but he didn't want it to have a camera. And he fought with the engineers on that, and it didn't have apps. You know, but it changed the world. That becomes the you know today that is the abstraction layer that matters. That's how most of the world accesses this technology. And now ChatGPT is going to come on top of it, and you know uh, the other ones, Claude, Anthropic, there, Meta, Google. There'll be lots of them. I think the risk is way overhyped because there are going to be lots of things, but it suits the main people to get the regulated because it keeps out competitors. And so if I am a, if I'm a leader, I love regulation because it means my competitors have many more hurdles to overcome that I don't. And that's why they favor it. But I don't know if you saw the announcement that a company announced last week that they were putting 500 million dollars worth of Nvidia processors on a barge international waters so that no regulation would apply. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's the nature of the world. I mean, you think you can regulate, but what can you regulate? If somebody puts the computers out on a barge in international waters, how do you regulate that? I mean, well, that's an old issue. There were pirate radio stations in the 70s oh, yeah. uh, in, in Europe, but um, AI is a new abstraction layer and every new abstraction layer has totally disrupted the world.
0: people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.